Good morning, church family. Good to see you all this morning. And yes, please come to the Discovery class. Even if you're curious, there's going to be some food there. There will be some good fellowship and a good time to maybe get your questions answered. So I encourage you to do that because church is not just something that you go to. It's something that God has called us to be a part of. It's not just something we should attend, but it's something that we should be connected with. So that would be an important step to that. And let's continue now to worship in God's word. Let's pray uh, in whatever situation we may be in. Let's offer up our situations to God. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I don't know the hearts of the people here in this room, but you know them, Lord. You know the secrets, you know the conflicts, you know the anxieties and the struggles and the desires. You know all of it, Lord. Whether it's pleasing to you or not, you know the thoughts of man. Heavenly Father, we ask by your grace that all of us will offer our thoughts and emotions to you, that they will be for your glory, that they will be pleasing to you, that you will be God over all of it, that we will not compartmentalize our inward life from you. Heavenly Father, speak through your word this morning, and unlike any other book or any other words, may it have that supernatural impact that you have promised. You create everything by your word. You create the universe by speaking it into existence. And even Paul to Timothy, Lord, we know calls this word God-breathed. So may it impact and cut to the joint and marrow of our lives today. I pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. As you remember from last week, our sermon on Israel came partly as a result of the lack of peace that we see in the world today. You turn on the news and you see a lack of peace, whether it's military peace or some kind of social lacking of peace in the Middle East or even here in our country today. It's easy to look out and recognize that we are in a world that lacks peace. But even though we can look out and see that there is a lack of peace, for most of us, as we look inward, we recognize that inward there is often a lack of peace as well. Anxiety is something that many people struggle with, more than maybe even we recognize. Whether it's a form of depression or a form of just emotional hurt or stress or anxiety. The number of teenagers who claim to uh, be suffering from anxiety has increased dramatically over recent years. And we turn everywhere to try to get the fix for that emotional hurt, whether it's a new diet or a new book with self-help tips and steps, or whether it's some form of medication or counseling or therapy, we are always looking for a solution to our lack of peace, which is why today we need to look to the Prince of Peace, and we need to look in His Word to see not only how He defines peace, but how we can attain it and the impact that it should have in our lives. So let's talk about peace this morning in Colossians chapter 3 verse 15. And as you're turning to Colossians, let's take a little bit of a review. I have a map here on the screen as you're turning to Colossians 3 that you can be reminded of the fact that Paul is writing this letter from Rome while in prison. This is one of the prison epistles. You can see Colossae there in what's called Asia Minor. 
And Paul, this is when he wrote his letter to the Ephesians, he wrote his letter to the Philippians and the Colossians, all roughly around the same time to a group of Christians that were gathering at a church in that city of Colossae. And over the past year, the letter was meant to be read and consumed all in one chunk, but we do what's called expositional preaching, where we want to carefully, verse by verse, sequentially teach the letter of the entire book in the order that it was written, which means that sometimes we can lose the forest from the trees and forget what the larger overarching purpose was of the letter. So I have an outline that we can look at to be reminded of the flow of this letter. Paul is writing to the Colossians from prison, but he writes in thankfulness. And while writing in thankfulness, he focuses in his letter on the importance of Christ. That's really what Colossians is about. When you think of Colossians, think of Christ. All of the letters and books of the New Testament are about Christ, but especially Colossians, talking about the supremacy of Christ in chapter 1, talking about the sufficiency of Christ to walk in him and the insufficiency of everything other other than Christ, whether it be idols or men or prayers or legalism. The importance of Christ which brings us to chapter 3, which is really the heart of Colossians. We're in the meat of the letter now, where Paul is giving practical advice on how to fulfill the purpose of his letter, which is walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. You've seen this slide often before, where the first half of the letter is talking about how the Colossians have received Christ. They're a healthy church. They're a church of believers, and they have received Christ as their Lord and Savior, but the rest of Colossians, Paul describes how they are to walk in him, how they're to actually live as believers in a way that is pleasing to God. You might remember me saying that many Christians have gotten the receiving Christ part down, but we don't focus enough on how to walk and live and grow as healthy believers as a result of our salvation. That's what chapter 3 is. Chapter 3 is a chapter of Paul describing how by faith Christians can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, having the right perspective focused on heaven, focused on the future, and living in a Christ-like way in dependence on faith in his death death and resurrection in a way that impacts our attitude in our hearts. If you look at verse 12 and verse 13, you'll see all of those positive examples of how we should be humble and how we should bear with one another and how we should forgive each other. Those are all models of Christ and his attitude. A couple of weeks ago, we had ended with verse 14, where Paul says, above all, like an overcoat, put love over everything, which binds everything together in perfect harmony is how verse 15 ends, or verse 14 ends. That's going to transition then to this morning's verse, where Paul's going to continue this detailed description of how to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord by now talking about peace. He's talked about love, and now he's going to transition to say this about peace in verse 15. Paul writes, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body and Be thankful. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at the three points and then we're going to save the big idea for the end 
as we break down this verse. And just remember that as we're breaking down this verse, this would have been a verse that would have been read and received in just a few seconds when it was read to the Colossians. But that was in a different language 2,000 years ago. And every word is God-breathed. And the health of a church is based on how it studies the Bible. And the deepest studying of the Bible should always happen on Sunday morning and in the evening. Which is why we take such careful pain to look at the individual words of each verse. So let's do that as we get ready to go through the three points. It will lead us to our big conclusion. The first thing that we have to do before we get to the first point is we have to define what peace is. When Paul says that to let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, what kind of peace is he talking about? As I mentioned at the beginning, we live in a society that idolizes peace. We'll pay money for it, we'll go to therapy for it, we'll, we'll take medicine in order to try to attain some kind of sense of peace to calm down our heart rate, to help us sleep at night, to give us a sense of comfort. We hunger after it, we desire it. The question is, is that the same kind of peace that Paul is describing here? Well, in the Bible, when the word peace is used, you should know that the Bible uses peace in two primary ways. And whenever you see the word peace come up in your Bible reading, which, by the way, you should be reading your Bible. Sunday shouldn't be the only time that this happens. In your Bible reading, when you come across the word peace, the first instance of peace that you may come across would be an emotional peace. The kind of peace that most of us think of when we think of peace, some kind of inward tranquility. This is the kind of peace that is described in Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. A very commonly quoted verse. People will Google it when they have a friend who's suffering and they want to encourage them with Scripture, and they'll often find this verse at the top of the Google listing. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We love that verse because in a world full of circumstances, full of challenges, full of grief, full of hurt, it's nice to know that we receive from God a kind of peace which surpasses all understanding, that gives you a sense of comfort even when you are mourning. On the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is the kind of peace that is being described, this first kind of peace. It also appears in John chapter 14, another commonly quoted verse, where Jesus in the upper room discourse, his last teaching before being crucified, he tells the disciples, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. This is the kind of peace that dominates our worship music in the 21st century. It's the kind of peace that dominates even preaching in the 21st century. I remember when I was in college in Spokane, I took a preaching class on evangelistic preaching. And the point of the class was to learn how to preach a message in a way that was evangelistic. And I remembered three quarters through the semester, I came across a very troubling realization that as I was listening to all of my classmates' sermons, including my own sermons on evangelistic preaching, I realized that none of those sermons, even though they were called evangelistic, none of them actually included the problem of the gospel. 
they all talked about peace. They all talked about emotional salvation, not spiritual salvation. You've probably heard a lot of other pastors preach this way too, so much so that it just becomes common. We kind of just turn off our brain when we hear it because it's so common to us. Are you hurting? Are you struggling? Do you struggle with self-doubt? Are you racked with fear? Know that there's a God who loves you. Know that there's a God who died for you, who cares about you, that gives you freedom from your hurt, that gives you freedom from your brokenness. See, you thought that was just the normal part of my sermon. But that's the way that preaching exists in America right now where we've turned the gospel into a gospel of therapy where we try to give people what they want, which is a sense of emotional comfort, and we say that Jesus and whatever entails Jesus is a way that you can have emotional comfort as a result, and we'll quote these kind of verses. And that's okay in a limited sense. But this is just one of the two ways that the Bible defines peace. In fact, it's the minority of the two. Because the majority of the time, when the Bible talks about peace, it's talking about a kind of peace that occurs between two people who were once enemies. It's talking about the kind of peace of people who were killing each other and fighting against each other and warring against each other, and now there is reconciliation. It's the kind of peace that comes to those who were once hostile. Towards God. In fact, this is how Paul describes it in Romans 8, verse 7. He describes all of us as those who we lack peace with God because we are hostile to God. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It uses that word of hostile, the opposite of peacefulness, hostility is the second way that peace is used and the most often way that it is used. The famous chapter would be Romans chapter 5. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That we were Christ's enemies, but that God died. He sent his son Jesus Christ to die for his enemies in order to turn them into his friends. We see that here. Romans chapter 5 verse 1. You see another example, just a few of many in James chapter 4, verse 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity or to be an enemy with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You need to know that no matter what degree of anxiety you're facing, no matter what degree of hurt, no matter what degree of heartache or trouble or grief, you genuinely may be suffering in. That as bad as that may be, that that is not the biggest problem that you have. The biggest problem that you have is that because of your sinfulness, you are an enemy of God. And that's a hard thing to preach about because that's not the kind of thing that creates church growth. That's the kind of thing that leads to letters and emails where people say, well, I wanted to come to church and I, and I wanted to be comforted and, and, and I needed to be helped and, and I needed compassion and mercy. And you're right, you do need compassion and you do need mercy. But you need more than just a solve over your symptoms. You need a cure for your sickness. And the sickness is sin. And the ultimate symptom is 
death because we are enemies of God. So when the Old Testament and the New Testament talks about the peace of God or the peace of Christ, the majority of the time, including this time here in Colossians chapter 3, it's referring to more than just an emotional peace. It's referring to a, a spiritual reconciliation, a restoration of relationship between us and our Creator. The kind of restoring relationship that can only come as a result of Christ-like love and sacrifice for our sin on the cross on behalf of us. When we talk about the peace of Christ, that's the kind of peace that we need to be thinking of, that we were enemies with God, but that God loved us while we were still sinners by dying for us. Therefore, we have peace. And it's with that in mind that we now need to go through our three points this morning, understanding that second kind of peace, which, by the way, that second kind of peace reconciliation with God, it does lead to that first kind of peace. It does lead to emotional comfort. It, it does lead to, uh, to, to a peacefulness or a tranquility, not in all times, not in all circumstances, not sometimes without grief or suffering, which are still part of the Christian life, but in the midst of that grief and suffering, still a peace that passeth all understanding because it outflows from a restored relationship with God as a result of Sin. So let's now look at the first point. With this understanding of peace in mind, here's what we should do with it. Point number one is this, that Christ's peace should be the guiding influence of your decisions. These aren't my words that I'm just pulling out of thin air. This is a summary of what Paul wrote at the beginning of verse 15. Reread that part. Paul starts out verse 15 by saying, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. That word let is not a suggestion, it's a command. He's giving the imperative that the peace of Christ, it should rule your heart. That's an interesting thing to think about because when we think about peace, we think of it so passively. We see peace as an emotion that we experience, where Paul is describing it as a gift of God that is ruling in our inward lives. In fact, the word that Paul uses when he says rule, to let the peace of God, the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, is really an athletic term. It's a word that was used in the Olympic Games and ancient sports. Are any of you guys watching the baseball playoffs? I know there's no reason to anymore since the Baltimore Orioles lost, but my family and I were still watching, you know, a little bit. And there's the umpire in those baseball games who it's his job to rule every pitch that comes down the plate, to judge it, to say whether it's good or bad, whether it's a strike or whether it's a ball. He is the one that is ruling what is accepted and what is rejected. Paul says that the peace of Christ should have the same kind of influence in your heart, meaning everything that outflows from the heart, the words of the mouth, your thoughts, your actions, they should be umpired they should be refereed by the peace of Christ. It should be refereed by the attitude that remembers that we were once enemies with God, 
but that Christ forgave us. He was sacrificial to us. He was loving towards us. He was patient towards us. In fact, he was all of these words that we just looked at over the past few weeks in verses 12 and 13 and 14. He was all of those things which results in peace with God. That it's that reconciliation. It's that restoring of a relationship. It's that mentality that should be the guiding influence of everything that you do. What is it that actually rules over your heart? Is it just your impulses? How you feel in the moment? The fact that you think perhaps you're a victim and so you want to lash out or you want to react? All of our hearts are ruled by something. Even Christians' hearts are ruled by something based on how they act. What is ruling your heart? What is governing your thoughts and your emotions and your actions? And in fact, that phrase, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, that can be a great mantra for your family. That can be a great mantra for your marriage. That can be a great thing to put on a post-it note on your mirror in the morning. When you're confronted with the opportunities to gossip or to deceive or to be angry, to remember that above all, the peace of Christ, the, fas- the sacrificial love that gave us restored relationship with God, it should be that same thing that did that for us, that same love and attitude that should be governing our actions towards each other. What is ruling your heart? If you claim to be a follower of Christ, then the peace of Christ should be the ruler of your heart, and it will be, because peace is one of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. There's no choice in this. It is a natural product of a tree that is planted in Christ. It will bear the fruit of peace, which will rule in your heart. Let's strive for that starting this morning. Now let's look at point number two. Point number two says this, that Christ's peace should be pursued as a goal of the church. That up to this point, we've been talking very individually. That peace is something that we should have individually ruling in our heart. But when Paul, at the beginning of verse 15, when he says you, when he says that you should have the peace of Christ rule in your heart, that is a plural second person. So as the Texans would say, y'all, y'all should have the peace of Christ ruling in your heart. My in-laws have been in Texas for a while. They came back, and they, they're just saying y'all all the time now. So you can ask them. Just kidding. Maybe not. But this is a corporate goal that God has given us. This isn't just an individual call that we are meant to have, but it's something that God actually calls for and expects within a local church congregation. And again, I'm not just pulling this out of thin air. This is what verse 15 says. To which indeed you all were called in one body. That idea of you were called to this is a way of saying that this was one of the goals of which a church was called to gather for. A church is given several goals. The goal of the local church is to glorify God. The goal of the local church is to make disciples. That's the Great Commission. But here we see another goal that is a part of those greater goals is the goal of us collectively as a church family having the peace of Christ ruling in all of our collective hearts. I'm going to tell you something now that may rub you the wrong way because this is not the kind of thing that 
you're probably used to hearing, or any churches are used to hearing from their pastors. It's common to think that it is the pastor's job to create church unity. That when there's a conflict, that you go to the senior pastor, and the senior pastor, he'll fix it, and, and, and he'll tell the person to shape up, or he'll deal with the issue, and as a result, there will be church unity. I want to let you know that it is not the pastor's responsibility for a local church to be unified. It's your responsibility. It's our responsibility, me included in that, that we are collectively called as a church body, not just to hope that we have a senior pastor or an elder board who wants to have a unified church, but that we as the gathering of believers, we decide we are going to be one body. We are going to have the peace of Christ rule in our heart. That's why it was so important for Kimmy and I when I was hired here at this church that this church was not just my place of employment, but that this was also my church family. That's why we became members. That's why Kimmy went to the discovery class last spring, and, and, and we were part of the membership class, because this is a collective call that we have together to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts in how we treat each other and in how we deal with conflict with each other. Don't get me wrong, I and the other pastors, we are happy to shepherd and to help you and to comfort you and encourage you when these tough conflicts and situations come up. Please know that. But know that our first advice will always be, go talk to that person. Talk to that person about it. Work it out with them. There may be unfortunate situations where later stages of Matthew 18 need to occur and maybe pastors need to get involved, but we don't pray for that. We pray that it will get resolved and the peace of Christ will rule in those initial conversations. We as a church, we proclaim Christ when we are a church characterized by the peace of Christ. When the peace of Christ is ruling collectively in our hearts as a church body, we are showing that we worship a God who is alive. And when we say that Christ is king, but he doesn't even have the authority to rule in our own hearts as a local church, we contradict ourselves. I know this church. I've seen this church from afar. I've known you guys even in the years before I was hired here. I know that this is a desire that you already have as a church. And I know that this is something that you have practiced over the years as a church. I want us to continue that. I don't want that to be lost. I want that to be a characteristic that we strive for as a local body here in Graham, because that's rare in churches. Even churches where the gospel is preached, that can be rare. So let's continue to try to be a rare church as we point to the single, alone God in heaven. Now let's look at the third point. <clears throat> kind of an odd third point, tacked on at the end. You can probably guess what this third point is going to be by reading the end of verse 15. Paul will occasionally do this. Almost out of the blue, he will see, it will seem like he includes this point where he ends verse 15 by saying this, and be thankful. Your third point is that Christ's peace should result in thankfulness. Thankfulness, in fact, is a mini-theme of Paul's letter to the Colossians. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 3 even while he's in prison, he is thankful for the Colossians. In fact, he's thankful for their thankfulness. In verse 10, he mentions thankfulness. And in the second half of the letter that we haven't gotten to yet, we're going to see thankfulness pop up from a guy writing from prison. 
which is amazing because he wasn't letting his circumstances rule his heart. He was letting the peace of Christ rule his heart. And that resulted in thankfulness. What's unique about this instance, though, is that in all the times in the New Testament where the word thankfulness is used, it's always given as an active command, meaning you should give thanks, or I give thanks for you, a very active form of that word for thanksgiving. This is the only instance where Paul gives the command that Christians should be described as thankful people. And there's a difference, isn't it? Because you can say, hey, you should give thanks, and that's a good command, and you should give thanks as a result. But there's a big difference between someone who gives thanks and someone who is described as a thankful person. That second one is way more powerful because that describes something that is noticeable to people over a course of time, a pattern of behavior where you are consistently giving thanks in all circumstances. That kind of thankfulness that would have other people describe you as being thankful, that can only come as a result of someone who is having the peace of Christ rule in their heart, who's having the restoring, reconciling love of Christ, that sacrificial attitude ruling in their heart and governing all of their behavior. That produces thankfulness. All of this comes to our big idea, which is really just a summary of the three points and a summary of verse 15. Christians are called to be ruled by Christ's peace. All of us are ruled by something. Even if we're genuine followers of Jesus Christ, our words and actions and emotions indicate who our master is or what our master is. We give testimony to others by what we do and showing what rules us. Paul says here that it's not just Christ that should rule our heart, but he specifically says it is the peace of Christ. It is the sacrificial love, kindness, and compassion that created the gospel for us that should guide what we do. And as I end, I want to just say a pastoral note to you, which is that it is not lost on me that we live in a world of sin where we see and feel the effects of sin everywhere. I understand and know what grief, depression, anxiety, I know what those feel like and I know what it sees, what it looks like to see that in others. I know the pain of that. I am not lost on the pain that comes from teenagers who are growing up and figuring things out, the, the realities of self-harm, the reality of suicidal thoughts. I recognize all of that. I don't want this sermon to be received as unempathetic to that. Real. And it's the product of a fallen world that we live in. I want you to know, though, that in light of anything that you may be doing, any kind of help that you're seeking, any kind of comfort that you're seeking, the only thing I can tell you is what the Bible tells you, which is that all of your relationships are a product with your one relationship with God. That the only true source of peace that is going to have a true impact in this life and in the life to come is going to be a life of peace that comes in you walking with Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that matters. That doesn't mean that there's never going to be grief in your life. That doesn't mean that there's never going to be stress or anxiety in your life. 
God never promises that. Jesus never promises a Christian life that is free from anxiety, fear, stress, or, or, yeah, or just general grief, but it does promise in the midst of all that a peace that passeth understanding. It does promise a right relationship with God, and from that there is fruit. So please, if you're a parent and you, your heart is aching over your child or your teenager who is deal, dealing with this, the best thing I can tell you is to make a relationship with Christ central to that child's life. Make it central in your home. If you're having issues in your marriage, make your walk with Christ central in your marriage. Make that the priority. Make that the pursuit. Seek first his kingdom, is what is said in Matthew 6.33. That is what God calls us to, to seek that kind of peace, the peace that reconciles us who are once sinners to God. So let's close in prayer in, in light of that. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I do pray for this church. I pray for this congregation and this community who are indeed, Lord, full of hurting people. You are acquainted with suffering, God. Your word tells us that. You are a God who knows what it feels like to grieve. You're a God who knows what it feels like to cry, to weep, to have stress so much that you even sweat your own blood. You are acquainted with those sorrows, Lord. I pray that we do not fall trapped to the lies of the world who tell us that the solution to those emotional pains are by seeking ourselves, but that we will seek your son, Jesus Christ, that we will repent from a life of self-centeredness, a life of sin, and we will turn in dependence on the sacrifice of your son, Jesus, on the cross for our sins and repentance, Lord. I pray that for all of us who are believers, that we will walk in that, that we will pursue you, that we will prioritize a relationship with you. And Lord, I do pray that you give the common grace of compassion and comfort to those who are hurting. But most of all, Lord, we look to your salvation. We look for the peace that can only come from Jesus Christ in right relationship with you. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, church family. Have a good day. Discovery class at 12 o'clock. Feel free to just show up. You guys are dismissed. Heaven came and kissed the earth. Prophets long ago foretold his birth. He became the living word to show the human heart its worth.